Hey everyone, it's so good to be with you on this very cold February day. Thanks for connecting with us uh, today online. If this is your very first time, I just want to say welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you've joined us. And I just want to say to everyone, I miss you all, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back together for in-person uh, worship services. And I'm hoping it's going to happen before we end this series uh, on Easter Sunday and um, that we have a, a chance to, to get back together soon. Today, uh, we're going to need to have our, our Bibles open to Mark chapter 14. So I want to invite you to take the time to find Mark 14 if you haven't already. Encourage you to that there is a, a detailed outline available online. If you if you like to download that, it could be very helpful for you to use. So let's get started. Some of you know the name Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens is a world-renowned atheist, uh, and he died in 2011. In 2007, he published a best-selling uh, book entitled, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. Now, after the book was published, he went on tour, as many uh, book writers do that have success, and, and he spoke to a lot of different groups around the country, and he debated evangelical uh, Christian leaders and many other religious leaders about this whole subject about God is not great and why religion poisons everything. In January 2010, Hitchens was interviewed by a Unitarian minister, Marilyn Sewell. Um, and, and here's what she, she said in the interview. This is very early in the interview. She said, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds because she's, she's a critic of, of uh, fundamentalist kind of thinking to people who take the Bible seriously. She says, I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion. So, you know, with uh, Hitchens being an atheist, she sort of thought that um, Hitchens was going to come, come down to her side. And uh, this is how Hitchens responds. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense, a Christian. Now, I think that's pretty amazing that Christopher Hitchens understood the Bible way better than this Unitarian uh, minister. One thing was clear. Um, he understood if you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, you're not a Christian in any meaningful sense. He's right on. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is absolutely central to our gospel, uh, the gospel of the New Testament. Jesus' death and resurrection is central to Christianity. It's central to all of the Bible. Now, today we're going to begin a new series leading up to Easter. It's called The Road 
to redemption. It was the path that Jesus took to the cross. It was the course that Jesus had to take to purchase our redemption. You also have a road to redemption. It's not the same road as Jesus took, but it leads through Jesus because Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the way anyone gains access to God. Um, so my, my question is, have you discovered that road that, that leads to your redemption? I know many of you have, but some of you may have not yet. Today in Mark uh, 14, verses 1 through 26, uh, this is entitled, Ready or Not, we see that Jesus is ready for that road, and his disciples are not. Verses uh, 1 through 11 Preparing for death. Jesus was preparing to die. And I just want to read verses 1 through 11 for us. Uh, so please follow uh, and this, so that this story will come alive for you. Now, the Passover, verse 1, and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So in verses 1 through 11, we see that Jesus was preparing to die. In verses 1 and 2, we have the situation. Mark records, Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. Mark identifies the time for us. It's two days before the Passover. The Passover was a special meal to be celebrated on the day of the Passover every year. It was for God's people. And this meal was to be eaten between sundown and midnight. It looked back to God delivering his people uh, back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 12, uh, he delivered his people out of slavery to Egypt. That particular night in, in Exodus 12, God passed over Egypt. God's people were to sacrifice or to slaughter a, an unblemished lamb. Every household was to do this, and they were to smear the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes. When God passed over at midnight, Wherever there was blood smeared on a doorpost, 
God passed over and everyone inside was safe. But over the homes of Egypt, where there was no blood on the doorposts, every home lost a firstborn child. The Passover meal reminded God's people of his deliverance, his powerful hand in delivering them. The feast of the unleavened bread was a seven-day period. The Passover was typically a one-day event with the Passover meal. What followed immediately was the seven-day period of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it was celebrating, recalling how quickly they had to exodus out of Egypt. And they were to take no leaven, and so they had unleavened bread only, and that was a very important part of the meal. And they were to be reminded of how God took them out quickly. And together, this is an eight-day period, sometimes just called the Passover, and it referred to all eight days. So now we see the religious leaders developing a plot. It's a plot to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. Now the reason is Jesus had become popular. He was attracting crowds. People were listening to his teaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law are having their authority challenged. Uh, now think about this. The, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Who are they? The chief priests are the most significant leaders in, in, in Israel during this day. And they are of the party Sadducees. Uh, they have a liberal perspective on the Bible. They don't believe in angels, they don't believe in miracles, and they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, the teachers of the law are Pharisees, and they're conservative, and they take the Bible seriously, and they do believe in angels, and they believe in miracles, and they believe in the resurrection. So these are two opposite groups, but guess what? They have come together on one issue, and that is to secretly arrest Jesus and kill him because he's such a challenge. Verse 2, but not during the, not during the festival, they said, the people may riot. Not during the festival? Why? Jesus is so popular that people aren't going to like it. So they decide to wait. See, in Jerusalem during a festival like this, there are thousands and thousands of extra people in the city. They have come to join in the celebration. And so the leaders want to wait until all the people go home. And then they want to secretly arrest Jesus. So think of this. The chief priests and the Pharisees representing the highest Jewish authority in the land, representing the law of God, decide to, see, decide to kill God's son. How ironic is that? In verses 3 through 9, uh, we see the extravagant gift. It will be an act of love. We see that in verse 3. Well, he, that is Jesus, was in Bethany, that's just two miles east of Jerusalem, while he was reclining at the home of Simon the leper. Uh, this actually takes place a few days earlier. Uh, Mark is not concerned about chronological details. Uh, we get so focused on, well, what happened next? And the first century writers didn't always do that. They marked out important events, and sometimes they put them in the order that they just felt made their story the best. And they, they, they were not attempting to do chronological order in everything that they did. Um, 
John 12 records that this, uh, this, this event happened the night before Palm Sunday. So that's just a few days earlier. And we see a woman um, came with an alabaster jar. We know from John 12 that that's Mary. Mary is the sister of Martha. Remember her? And Mary is the sister of Lazarus. And she came, Mary came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured perfume on his head. Now, this uh, seems a little odd for our, our experience. She had an expensive perfume. It was a heavily perfumed, heavily scented oil. And it was imported from India. Uh, not everybody would have this. And she poured this scented oil on Jesus' head. And this act of love raised some intense criticism. We see it in verse 45. Criticism for generosity. Uh, some of those present, uh, who is that? Who were present? Well, it was the disciples. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. And they rebuked her harshly. By the way, whose perfume was it? Was it their perfume that they could give it away? It was her perfume, and she decided to give it away. And she's criticized. It was Judas who was the one who spoke up. And we see that in John 12. He's identified by name. And he's the one who said, why waste this perfume? Uh, he said the perfume was worth a year's wages. Now, what would that mean for us? Well, for our purposes, let's just say it's worth twenty to $30,000. That would be expensive perfume. And Judas thinks it's a waste to pour it on Jesus' head. And the disciples join in and they give us a stern correction. We also know from John chapter 12 that Judas' concern was more than just whether the perfume was wasted or not, whether it was a good use. Judas had other motives. He had ulterior motives. Judas was... Uh, the keep sort of the treasurer of the group. He was the keeper of the money, and he actually had a money bag where people who gave to support Jesus's ministry it went in. They bought food. They bought necessary things out of this treasury, and Judas was responsible for it. And John tells us on two different places that Judas just used to help himself for it. He was an embezzler. He was a thief. Verses six through nine. Jesus quickly steps in and gives an appreciation for generosity. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Um, she's done a wonderful thing. And then he says, the poor you'll always have with me, and you can help them anytime you want, but you're not always going to have me. Jesus saying, he's not saying don't help the poor, because the Bible all the way through from the Old Testament to the New Testament tells uh, believers to be generous with the poor and give to the needs of the poor. And that has never changed. And I think at times in history, there have been some Christians who have taken this first and said, because Jesus said, uh, we'll always have the poor, that 
I'm not going to worry about it because they're always there. It's not my, not my responsibility. But that's not at all what Jesus had in mind. He's saying this situation is unique. This situation is different. And it has a unique purpose. Verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Jesus saw it with a much deeper meaning. She was participating in preparing him for his own death. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, years to come, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still telling her story just as Jesus said. Um, Mary anointed Jesus' body for his death. The disciples are clueless. Uh, She gave away perhaps her life savings here. And Mary likely was uh, intuitively um, sensing Jesus' heart way more than the disciples were. The tone of, of, of what Jesus' attitude, she had heard him teach many times. Remember, uh, Jesus, um, just a week before, had had dinner at their house, and Martha complained. She was in the kitchen, and, and Mary was uh, sitting in the living room, and, and she was listening to Jesus, and Martha was complaining in the kitchen about all the things she had to do. Mary was listening. Um, she was picking up, beginning to understand. How many times did Jesus say he was going to Jerusalem and that he was, he was going to die and that, that the religious leaders would put him to death and on the third day he would be raised again? This was not new. He had, Jesus had been telling this to his disciples. And we don't know exactly what Mary had heard or what she knew. But she sensed the seriousness of this as Jesus was moving down the road to the cross. And we still remember her today. In verses 10 and 11, we see the betrayal plan. The Christ follower turns away from Jesus. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. So if you remember in the, in, in the beginning, the, the leaders were looking for a, a, a way to uh, arrest Jesus secretly and then to kill him. But they said, no, nah, not now. It's not a good time. We've got all these people, and he's so popular. But they, weren't, they didn't anticipate this. One of Jesus' very own followers is going to turn him in. And Judas had been with Jesus from the beginning. Three years, day in and day out. But but Judas threw his, this tells you a lot about his nature and maybe some about his background, but being responsible for the money, and and he probably volunteered to handle the money for the group. He was tempted over and over again to take, which wasn't his. Um, 
But now Judas is, is disappointed with Jesus and how things are turning out. He determines it's time to leave Jesus behind and at least make a few bucks as he goes. We see in verse 11, the religious leaders are excited now. They're excited about the wrong things. Verse 11, they were delighted to hear this and they promised to give him money. Now think about this. Um, the religious leader who are to be God's first responders are delighted, they're excited, they're thrilled that they get to arrest God's son just for 30 pieces of silver. The other gospels tell us the amount that they paid. So Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. It would happen in the upper room. It would happen during the meal on that very night. You know, perhaps the leaders were thinking after, the, after everybody goes home. But on this very same night, Judas will leave. We, we, we see this in John 13. Judas will leave the room and he will leave to, to betray Jesus. He, he would slip out during the Passover meal. Which brings us now to our final section in verses 12 through 26. And it's about celebrating the Last Supper. The day is Thursday. Jesus will be dead in less than 24 hours. The place is Jerusalem. We see the prep in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12 is the importance on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So remember the Passover is a very important time in the life of every Israelite to remember God's marvelous deliverance of their ancestries out of slavery in Egypt. Every household was to slaughter a Passover lamb. The meal included a, ro a roasted shank bone representing the Passover lamb. Uh, through the years, traditions changed. Various parts, there were several things that were central. Uh, part of the lamb, uh, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, later an egg, and some, an apple-like mixture. Um, the, the roasted shank representing the Passover lamb. An egg was representing a spring in the circle of life. Bitter herbs representing the bitterness of slavery. The applesauce-like uh, mixture of wine and nuts and apples uh, represented uh, the mortar that were used to make bricks. The unleavened bread was to remember the, the um, hurry getting out of Egypt on that night. The various greens like parsley represent uh, spring. There were four cups of wine that went with the meal that celebrated, uh, and they were to be celebrated at certain times. Now, before you get too excited about four uh, cups of wine, uh, I want to remind you that um, they didn't necessarily have 13.5% uh, alcohol in their wine. Maybe it was less than 1% at times. One writer says it was two-thirds water and the wine of the day. Uh, I don't really know. Here's what I want to say. The whole meal was symbolic. Every part had a purpose. Now, the, the disciples will not understand until later, but Jesus will become 
their Passover lamb. John the Baptist's words will be fulfilled when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was now time to make preparations for this Passover meal. It will be Jesus' last one. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus' mindset on this day. Look what, look what John, excuse me, this is the Apostle John, not the Apostle Paul. He said, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus understood clearly the road he was taking. It was a road to our redemption. And do you sense the urgency? Do you sense the heaviness of the hour that Jesus experienced? The disciples kind of are clueless. We have the instructions that Jesus gave in verses 13 through 15. He sent two of his disciples. He said, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, uh, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. In verse 16, the lesson, the disciples left and they went to the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. No surprise. So they went ahead and prepared the meal. Now this this lesson really isn't a very big lesson. They, the disciples saw this over and over again. Jesus knew what he was doing. He could be trusted. He seemed to know just what to expect, and he seemed to know just what to do. The lesson for us is that we can count on Jesus. We can trust him with our lives. He is worthy. Whatever trial we are facing, we can count on him. Jesus will lead us through. Now, I don't know what you are facing, but I know that you can trust him. I know you can trust him with everything. Next, the betrayer is identified in verses 17 through 21. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. And so, It's going to be one of the 12, one of the original 12 disciples. Verse 19, they were sad, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the 12, he replied. One who dips his bread into the bowl with me, the Son of Man, will go just as it is written about him. Disciples haven't thought much about that. What's been written about him? What's what's been written in the Old Testament? And they're they're going to see later. How many things were written about Jesus to fulfill his life and now his coming death? Jesus identified his betrayer. Not by name. Judas is not discovered yet. I can imagine what would happen if Judas had been discovered if Jesus said, well, it's Judas... And the disciples would have um, probably tied him up and covered his mouth and not let him out of their sight. That wasn't what Jesus had in mind. Jesus was intentional. 
The disciples right now are clueless, and later they'll understand. Ultimately, Judas will have a very bad ending, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And Judas is later going to hang himself when he regrets what he had done. And he's going to face an eternal damnation. In verse 22, verses 22 through 26, we have the institution of the, of the Lord's Supper, and we call it communion. Now, communion is called uh, many different things according to various traditions. We typically say communion. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called the Last Supper. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Table. And then for some of you, it's been called the Eucharist. And that's just very simply refers to thanksgiving. Uh, that phrase, he gave thanks. That's, that's a Greek word for giving thanks. We have the bread in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take it. This is my body. So the Passover um, meal was pro pro proceeding normally when Jesus changes the routine. Jesus prayed and gave thanks. That was normal. He gave his disciples bread. That was normal. And then with these words, he changed the course of history. He gave them the bread and said, this is my body. Was Jesus being literal or was he being figurative or symbolic, metaphorical. Now, through the ages, the church has had different views on this. There are three or four main views. And uh, let me describe this just briefly, because um, people come from all different kinds of backgrounds. Which one of them maybe have you experienced? Uh, the first uh, one with the technical word is transubstantiation. You don't ever have to remember that. It just simply means that when uh, Jesus said these words, and now as we take it now to um, when a priest or a minister uh, takes the bread and he says, this is uh, my body, that a miracle takes place and the bread is changed miraculously to the body of Christ. So that when people uh, take the bread, they're actually eating the body of Jesus. And that's how they receive Christ. And that's how they grow in grace. Okay? Transubstantiation. The second one is just a little bit different. It's called consubstantiation. And in this case... When the minister says, this is my body, it's called the words of institution, this is my body, Christ becomes present in and around and through the bread. It's still bread, but now Christ is present in and around and through the bread. And the third view I want to mention is the memorial view. And when Jesus said, this is my body, or when a minister says, this is my body, it's representative. It's a metaphor. It's a symbol. It means the bread is still the bread, but it is to point to something greater that's, that's important. And the point of it is we are to remember this. 
Every part, think about this, every part of the Passover meal was symbolic. This is how the disciples understood it on that night. Um, it's, it's not about um, eating Christ's body. It's about remembering Christ's death. Now, Jesus used metaphors about himself on many occasions. For example, Jesus said, I am the door. Did he mean that literally he was a wooden door? He said, I am the gate. Did he mean that he was literally a wooden gate? He says, I am the light of the world. Did he mean literally that he was a light? Or was it figurative? He said, I am the good shepherd. Did he mean literally he was a shepherd of real, literal sheep? Or was he thinking of something bigger? He was a shepherd of people. He said, I am the way. Or another way we could translate that is, I am the road. And um, did he literally mean that he was a dirt path or a concrete path? Or did he mean it symbolically? Yes, Jesus is the way. But it's through his death and his burial and his resurrection that we have access to God. That's the way we reach God. Verses 23 and 25, we have the cup. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. And then he said, this is my blood. Did he mean that literally, or was it a metaphor, symbolic? This is my blood. Of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, it's the blood of the covenant. This is historic. When Jesus says this, he is marking a major change in all of history. The old covenant with the law of Moses is about to be fulfilled with the death of Jesus. When Jesus pays the perfect sacrifice for all of sin and no more sacrifices, no more animal sacrifices need to be made for people. A new covenant will be instituted. A new covenant, a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. A New Testament in Christ's blood. Um, a covenant is established by one person. It's not negotiated. It's not two people coming to an agreement. A covenant was established by God. It's his terms. We come to God always on his terms. We don't negotiate. And then verse 25, he says, I tell you, uh, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new kingdom of God. And this is going to be their last supper. Jesus will not drink wine again with them. He will not share in a meal again with them until he comes again, until perhaps the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. Verse 26, we're going to hold off this verse until next week. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. But we're going to, next week, we're going to come 
And there's a part of the story before we get to verse 46. It's going to happen in the room where they had their last meal. It's before they depart the room. I have three lessons, three lessons uh, from our passage today. The first one is, remember God is in charge even when circumstances are dark and disheartening. God is in charge no matter what your circumstances, no matter how bad they may seem, no matter how dark, no matter how discouraging. The period leading on the road to the redemption was dark. For us, it seems, you know, when you think about the crisis of that night, and when you think about losing a loved one and remembering the details, and remember how the crisis got started and how the crisis got worse, and you can read this story and you can see that developing. It was a period of dread, the road to redemption. But every one of us faced times that seemed dark and discouraging and disheartening. And I just want to remind us that God is still in charge even when it doesn't feel like it. And I want to encourage you just to keep walking with Him. He's going to take you through it. Just stay the course. God is in charge. Secondly, sometimes God moves people to give extravagant gifts for the sake of his kingdom. Now, we saw God moved Mary's heart just to be extravagant with Jesus. Sometimes God does that. It's not necessarily a regular occurrence. We're always to be generous. That's normal. The scriptures are clear about that. But sometimes God moves people to be extra generous, extravagant. And I just want us to leave us with a thought question on this. If God wanted you to be extravagant, could he depend on you? I think that's a hard question. If God wanted you to give him an extravagant gift and he asked for it, would you give it to him? It tells us a lot about us. The last one, number three, Jesus knew the steps he was taking before his death. He, he also knows all the steps that we need to take in following him. And again, it's really just about, can you trust him? Can you trust Jesus with your life? Judas thought that he knew better than Jesus. Judas decided that following Jesus wasn't worth it. Now, maybe you're not a Judas, but do you trust him with the details of your life? Are, are you tempted to think that you know better, that, that you can handle your life better than if Jesus is leading? That you'd rather be the master of your life than have Jesus be your Lord? I just want to encourage us. Let's trust him fully. A fully devoted follower of Christ. Now today we have the privilege of celebrating uh, together communion to celebrate the death of Christ. And, and we get to do this virtually. Um, and th so this is a time that um, you should have your elements of communion, the, the bread and the cup, have them ready. And... Um, you know, the nice thing is, if you're not prepared right this minute, you can just turn the video off.
and you can go get a bread in the cup. Um, and at home, um, and you know, we've offered the sealed communion during the pandemic for you to, we, we've delivered it, uh, so you've come here to pick it up. Uh, but if you just have any kind of bread and juice, grape juice would be recommended, uh, you, this is you can participate f- from home uh, right now. Um, in keeping with Scripture, the Apostle Paul said, before we share in this time, this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 through 26, before we share in this time, we ought to examine our lives. Sort of ask God to look at our lives and, and show how we stack up. How do we compare with God's standards? And this is a purpose so we can be spiritually prepared to, to share in this time. And that we are to keep short accounts with God and to make sure that our failures before God, our sin is confessed to Him. Um, so we're going to take some time to do that. And the great, the, the great thing is uh, we have the offer of forgiveness as a child of God. Because when we mess up as God's children, when we fail God as His children, He offers us forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, if... We confess our sins. He, God, is faithful and true and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. He'll he'll purify us. He'll cleanse us. And we have that promise. So um, I want to just, let's let's take time right now. And we're going to ask God to show us our our failures. We're going to ask for forgiveness if we need to. And then... Importantly, we're going to need to accept his forgiveness. So let's pray. Let's bow before him. Just talk to God from your heart. See if you can have some silence in the room. Just ask him to show you areas where you have not measured up before him. Just identify those things. Be honest. And ask God to forgive you for each one. And then the last very important part is to accept the promise from God. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, uh, God, we accept your forgiveness. Thank you. We recognize we don't deserve it. And you have given us a, a clean slate. And then, Father, uh, we want to thank you for the bread that represents the body of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus sacrificed his life, that he gave himself, he gave his all to you on our behalf. We deserve the death, and he took our death, and he paid for our sins so that we did not have to pay for our own sins. Thank you for the bread that reminds us of this. Amen.
So let's take the bread, and if you have a sealed cup, you just take off the, the top. And there's a little bread wafer. And so this is a symbol that reminds us of the body of Christ. Let's remember him together. And then, Father, we want to thank you for the cup that reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. There's an important concept in Scripture from the Old Testament and in the New Testament that life is in the blood, Jesus' life and his blood demonstrated that he gave everything for us. He gave his life so that we might have his life. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cup that reminds us of this. May we be humbled in your sight when we think of the cost that you paid for us and we are reminded of your love for us and are reminded that it's by grace. It's not about because we deserve it in any way. Thank you for the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll take off the seal of the juice. This cup is a symbol that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's remember him together. The Apostle Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still being a witness to the life of Christ and the death of Christ and what it means to follow Christ and to tell other people about the good news. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. Looking forward to next week. We're going to be focusing on John chapter 17, if you want to have a look at that. God bless you all. Have a great day.